Good night, church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are the God of life. Lord, can these dry bones live? Lord, the answer is yes, only by your word, only by your spirit. And we pray, God, that the Holy Spirit would come and empower this um, teaching tonight, Lord. I pray, God, that the Holy Spirit would guide us, teach us, and point us ultimately to the glories of Christ. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, so open up your book, uh, your Bible to Acts chapter 2. Um, as a church, we have been going through the book of Acts on Sunday nights. And if you recall, the book of Acts is the sequel to the gospel of Luke, as he says in Acts 1.1. In the first book, we're talking about the gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. See, the Luke's use of the word began connotes that Jesus hasn't stopped doing and teaching. You see, whereas the gospel of Luke is a record of the earthly ministry of Jesus, Acts is, as Max taught us, a record of the heavenly ministry of Jesus. Jesus is working powerfully through the disciples by the Holy Spirit to build his kingdom. Therefore, in chapter 1, when the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He refocuses their question. The disciples are concerned with when the kingdom will come, and he wants them to be concerned about how it will come. That's why he answers them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. You see, the kingdom is going to be built by Jesus via his spirit-empowered believers. Last time, Sean went over the fact that the disciples, in obedience to Jesus' command, went back to the upper room and prepared for the Spirit's arrival. They studied the scriptures, prayed, and in accordance with scripture, added Matthias to the twelve. And this leads us to chapter 2, in which they received the promised power as the Holy Spirit comes upon them at Pentecost. But now that I mentioned it, what is so special about this Pentecost thing? I mean, we don't celebrate it like Easter or Christmas, right? What is the big deal? What makes this so important? Well, we're going to explore that question in four points. The indwelling, the inauguration, the indictment, and then the invitation. I'm going to say it again. The indwelling, the inauguration, the indictment, and the invitation. So let's go into point one. Point one is the indwelling. Um, Acts chapter 2, verse 1 says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, referring to Jesus' 120 disciples, were all together in one place. So let's just jump in. Like, what is Pentecost? Well, Pentecost, otherwise known as the Feast of Weeks, was the second um, great annual feast that happened in the Jewish calendar, right? The first being Passover, and then the third being the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, the feast was celebrated about 50 days after Passover, hence the name Pentecost, right, which is derived from the Greek term meaning 50. Pentecost was an agricultural festival, a day when the people thanked God for his provision during the wheat, uh, sorry, the barley harvest that had already been gathered. 
and sought God's blessing on the wheat harvest to come. However, like all other feasts, right, the Pentecost celebrated um, the Passover and Exodus and celebrated, obviously, the, the, the children of Israel's time in the wilderness. So where is Pentecost fitting all this? Well, Jewish tradition says that the first Pentecost, quote-unquote, happened when God met the people of Israel on Mount Sinai, and he gave them his law. Now, if you look at Exodus 19 and you do the math, the timing actually could work, which is why a lot of scholars believe that it is possible. Um, But either way, um, the Jewish people celebrated Pentecost as the day that God came down to his people and gave them his law. And I don't think this connection is lost on Luke, because you see at the beginning of uh, verse 1 where it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived. Well, that also can be translated when the day of Pentecost was being fulfilled. See, I think that translation kind of reveals more of Luke's intention. He doesn't want his readers to to miss that Pentecost is, is to be seen in light of God's promises. What promises? Well, first of all, the Lord, right? In Luke 24, 49, when he says, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. But the Holy Spirit was not only just promised by our Lord Jesus Christ. The the coming of the Spirit was promised all through the Old Testament. Remember Ezekiel 36, 27? And I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. How about Isaiah 44, 3? For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And there's many more, not to mention Joel 2, which Peter will later quote. See, Jews celebrated the day as the, the day of Pentecost as the day that God came down and wrote the law on the tablets of stone. As on that same day that the Spirit of God comes down, the Holy Spirit comes and writes the law on their hearts. This is no coincidence, brothers and sisters. This is not by accident. This is fulfillment. But what does it say? Let's continue. It says in verse 2, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, throughout the scriptures, right, um, God is is associated with both wind and fire. And even when we read this, we remember now, this is, Luke is using analogies here. He's saying, like, or as, right? Because these things are not literally wind and fire. But he's trying to give a description for his reader. But when you think about it, right, um, when you think about wind in the Bible, right? For example, the Bible says, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, Job 38.1. Even the word for spirit in the Greek, pneuma, right, also means wind or breath. So Luke could even be doing a, a play on words here. But likewise, fire appears as a frequent um, uh, way that God uh, um, kind of reveals his glory, Right? When God reveals his denying uh, name to Moses, it says that he was in the flame of fire out of the midst of the bush, right? His presence with Israel in the wilderness was seen at night in the pillar of fire. And at Mount Sinai, it says the Lord descended on it in fire. You see, 
Luke um, is uh, connecting these manifestations with what has come before in the scriptures. Also, that idea of the sound coming from heaven, he wants you to know that this is not some sort of natural phenomenon. This is from heaven. This is God coming down. So what was the result of these manifestations? Well, it says, verse 4, And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. The disciples were filled with the Spirit. The promise had come. And they started to speak in tongues. And this commotion drew a crowd, right? Um, And this crowd, even though it was said it was made up of 15 different ethnic groups, later on in the text says, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, at this point, I think it's a good time to, uh, like, just talk about tongues really, really briefly. Look, uh, Luke's intention is not to give, like, a full treatise on the topic of tongues. He's not trying to, to... really go into all of the theological um, underpinnings of this, this event. But he's essentially just trying to, um, I'm sorry, just as we kind of read it, though, I just want to mention some things really quickly. One, if you notice, the languages that the disciples are, teach, are speaking in are known languages. This isn't like there's some new unheard of language that cannot be identified or known, Right? These are known languages, right? Because the crowd say, we hear them telling in our own tongues, right? And then two, there's another thing here. The gift of tongues, at least in this iteration of what we see here, is evangelistic in nature. This isn't like they haven't, uh, um, they're saying tongues to themselves. They're not saying tongues for their own private encouragement. This is a tool by which the people all these people from all these different places could hear and understand the mighty works of God. So what's the, the crowd's immediate reaction to all of this? Well, in a word, uh, confusion. Look at, look at the text right here. It says, uh, verse 6, And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered. Verse 7, And they were amazed and astonished. Verse 12, And all were amazed and perplexed. See, they're confused. They're trying to figure out what is happening here. And the crowd's bewilderment isn't just because of what is happening before them, but by whom it's happening. Look at verse 7 again. It says, And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? See, this kind of linguistic mastery would have been shocking to the Jews coming from the Galileans. These are people that they viewed as kind of backward. These are people who had funny accents, right? Uh, do you remember how Peter was recognized in the courtyard of the high priest? They said to him, certainly you two are one of them for your accent betrays you. You see, the fact of the matter is they are confused because the Galileans shouldn't be the ones talking like this. Now, this kind of, this manifestation of God's um, glory and power, this indwelling of the Spirit and this um, and 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 the subsequent response um, kind of gets two different reactions from the people, right? Yes, they're confused, but in response to this confusion, they kind of say two different things. 
Some people are seeking understanding. Some people are trying to understand what is going on genuinely. And that's why they say, what does this mean in verse 12? But others in verse 13 mocked and said they are filled with new wine. And at this point, I really just want to make a quick, I don't know, I guess you'd say a point of application. Brothers and sisters, there is an attitude sometimes among Christians that says something like this, like, man, you know, if God were to move like he did in Acts, if we could do the miracles like they did in Acts, then we would see revival. Then people would come to Christ. And I would hope that this story kind of disabuses you of that idea. Because you see, there are people there who can understand that they are hearing the disciples speak in one language, and the people around them are hearing, and hearing them in, a other, in another language, all at the same time. And their response is to mock it. They're not serious in saying that they, these uh, disciples are drunk. They know that's a ridiculous uh, notion. They're just mocking them. Brothers and sisters, the lost don't need um, miracles. They don't need more data. They don't need um, fancy arguments even. They need the Spirit of God. They need regeneration. That is the only way they can understand and want to accept the gospel. But you see, the very spirit that they need to provide regeneration is the spirit that has come to permanently indwell within the disciples. So what does this indwelling signify? Well, Peter doesn't want the crowd to be left in suspense, right? He wants them to know that the indwelling of the Spirit marks the inauguration of a new age in redemptive history. Hence our second point, the inauguration. Verse 14, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judah, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Um, the twelve kind of come forward as representatives of the other 100 plus disciples. And from the twelve, Peter steps forward as their representative, as their spokesperson. And there's two things that I kind of want to make mention of really quick before we get into what he says. First, this is the same Peter who, what, several weeks ago, maybe seven or so weeks ago, denied Jesus because he was pressed by a few people? What happened? What's changed? He's bold now. He's willing to stand before thousands. Well, the Holy Spirit has come. The Holy Spirit is empowering him. And do you remember what Jesus told the disciples? He, remember he told them not to be anxious about how they should defend themselves or what they should say? Why? Uh, this is Luke 12, 12. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. See, the Holy Spirit has given a word here to Peter. He has inspired and empowered him to be able to proclaim truth to this crowd. And that is why Peter is able to do so. But two, I also just want to make a slight note here. This may not be the biggest thing in, and the most important thing. But just as a note, this is not a full transcript of Peter's sermon. Right? Look at verse 40. It says, And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them. Luke has just given us the highlights. Basically, it's like if someone came to you and said, yo, what did Harry preach about this morning? You're not going to have a full transcript. You're trying to just give people the idea. So you'll give the major points. And that's what he's doing for us here. So what points does he give? Well, first, Peter kind of dismisses the crowd's mockery, right? He says that, look, guys, we're not drunk. And, you, and, he, he's, and even there's a sense of like, you know this, right? Because it's, it's only 9 a.m. 
It's too early. Right? <laughs> well, some people may say it's not too early, but it's too early. <laughs> right? And Peter then says, look, this phenomenon that you're seeing, this isn't drunk, man. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then he proceeds to quote with a few variations. Joel 2, 28 to 32. Now, before we get into his quotation of Joel 2, 28 to 32, I think it would be good to just kind of explain what is the context of Joel when he's given these words. So in the book of Joel, right, God is judging Judah for their sin. And, uh, and how is he judging them? Well, he's judging them by sending locusts. And these locusts have eaten everything. They've ruined the people. All their resources are gone. And Joel comes to them and tells them that this is the result of God's judgment. And in response to Joel's preaching, they actually repent. And God, being who God is, merciful, restores them. And he says in Joel 2.19, Behold, I am sending you grain and wine and oil, and you will be satisfied. However, Joel also goes to warn Israel that the judgment they just experienced, the judgment that the Lord restored them from, is only a foretaste of a more severe and a more final judgment to come. A judgment that is referred to as the day of the Lord. And Joel is then saying that leading up to this final day of judgment, there will be a set of distinguishing events that occur over a period of time he does not define. One of which is the indwelling of the Spirit. So now, let's look at Acts 17 for a second here. And this is Peter quoting Joel 2. And he says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. I just want to pause there for a second because Peter has modified the original text of Joel. No, excuse me. If you look at Joel 2, 28, it begins with this. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. You see what Peter did there? He says in the last days instead of I shall come to pass afterward. Now, this isn't Peter like, you know, changing the meaning of the, uh, Joel's original words. The word afterward in that context of Joel is kind of something like at some point. So it can almost be read at, and it shall come to pass at some point, right? So he's not, he's not changing what Joel originally has meant here. Instead, what Peter is trying to do is help his listeners properly interpret what Joel is talking about. Because you see, that added phrase in the last days is taken from um, Isaiah 2, 2 where it speaks of a time where all nations shall flow into the Lord's temple and the word of the Lord will extend out from Jerusalem. You see, Peter's whole point is the last days that Isaiah talks about and this time that is uh, brought in by the Spirit's coming are the one and the same. They're the same thing. You see, he's saying that the final days of salvation's history have kind of begun, right? The last days have been inaugurated. The last days have been initiated. We are now moving along to the final day of the Lord where he will judge all sin. 
But see, let's look back at uh, Acts 17 again. 17 and 18. Right? Um, well, it says, and, it sh- um, and in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Actually, one other thing to mention about this. This is a kind of a callback to Numbers 11. And in Numbers 11, there's a story where Moses is kind of burdened by the responsibility of having to lead the people. And God, um, seeking to give uh, Moses some support, instructs him to assemble 70 elders of the people before the tent of meeting outside of the camp. There God grants the empowerment of the Spirit upon these elders so that they can help Moses lead the people. Now, when the Spirit becomes, comes upon them, they prophesy. They, that's what the Bible says. They begin to prophesy as the Spirit comes along them, on, upon them. But there are two people, two other elders, who are inside the camp, and for whatever reason, the Bible doesn't say, they are not with the 70. But the Spirit of God falls on them as well, and they begin to prophesy. And when this happens, because they're inside the camp, other people are able to see and Joshua comes to Moses, and, and maybe he's, he's, he's um, concerned that if people see these other guys prophesying, that would take away some authority from Moses. So he comes to Moses and he says, hey, you've got to stop these two guys from prophesying. And then Moses says this. This is Numbers eleven twenty nine. Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. You see, the prophet Joel foresees a day when Moses' wish comes true. But you may have a question, right? Your question may be, well, okay, I understand that the Spirit is indwelling them, but what is the difference between this and the Old Testament? How does, what's the difference? Well, you see, when you look at the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, and it is actually very similar in a lot of ways to the role of the Spirit in the New Testament. In order to be saved, one in both the Old and New Testament, Old and New Covenants, need the regeneration of the Spirit. That has not changed. That never changed. Also, the Holy Spirit empowered people in both the Old and New Testament. So the difference here is about the indwelling. Because you see, during the Old Covenant era, the Spirit's, the spirit's indwelling was selective. It wasn't on everybody. You see, and the Spirit would come to rest upon certain individuals to help them to fulfill a calling or to be able to, to enter into a role that God had prepared for them. And we kind of see this all over the Old Testament. Um, when David was anointed king, it says, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day or, or forward. When Ezekiel was called a prophetic ministry, it says, he says that the Spirit entered into me. When the ark needed to be built, God says, I have called um, by name Bezalel, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. You see, the Spirit of God came to help people to be empowered to do a certain role. And usually, for the most part, um, with some few exceptions, like judges and like the craftsmen in, in Exodus, um, the Spirit would primarily be on prophets, kings, priests. But additionally, this a dwelling would, um, could, te- would, could be temporary. And it could be withdrawn from somebody who originally had it. Remember Saul? Remember it says that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul? 
But you see, the dwell- indwelling that Joel is referring to here is a permanent indwelling. And it's an indwelling that happens on everybody. All who believe, regardless of their gender, right? Because he says your sons and your daughters. Age doesn't matter, right? Because he says your young men and your old men. And social class isn't even a problem. Because it says servants, your f- male and female servants. And you see, this is what we see in Acts, right? All of the disciples, all 120 of them, with no exception, received the Spirit. But this still doesn't answer why the Spirit is necessary. Why has the Spirit come? Well, let's look at 19 and 20. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Well, why? Well, the Spirit has come because the day of the Lord is fast approaching. See, the idea here in verse 19 and 20 um, may be taken, uh, his statements here may be taken literal, it may be taken metaphorically. Commentators kind of disagree on this. But wherever, however you wish to look at that, right, whether this be a metaphor or something that is going to happen in the future, the point here is that because God is coming in judgment, it is like creation itself is trembling. Creation itself is reacting to the fact that God is coming. And thus, we should have a question. The people listening to Peter should have a question. How can one survive this wrath to come? How can some, someone survive this day of the Lord? Well, look at verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You see, the last days are marching towards that final day of the Lord. Will the fullness of his um, justice and power and glory will be shown. But there's hope. There's hope because everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But this does bring to mind something that Paul said in Romans. Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And see, friends, that is why the Spirit has come. Because remember I said earlier, the Spirit came in the Old Testament to upon people to empower them for a particular calling and role. And he has come to empower Christ believers, Christ disciples for a purpose. And that purpose is to prophesy to God, to prophesy about God. So look back at verses 17 and 18. There's something I skipped out. It said, and in the last days it shall be God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Now, this is where we come into the second of Peter's uh, modification of the original uh, text of Joel. So if you look at Joel 2.29... 
It, it says this, even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Peter adds that, and they shall prophesy. And he's doing that for, uh, for a literary reason. It's a literary device, right? That he is using to kind of envelope visions and dreams. In other words, the idea is this. The phrase, and they shall prophesy, is used to frame how we define visions and dreams. Meaning that visions and dreams are to be seen as a subset of prophecy. See, prophecy in the Bible does not always refer to telling the future. And as a church, we've seen this before. So if you remember all the way back um, in October of 2020, it's been a while. Um, Remember 1 Samuel 10? Where Saul is anointed king. And the Bible says, uh, this is 1 Samuel 10, 10 and 11. And when they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him. The hymn here is Saul. And he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And back then, remember how he talked about the fact that Sometimes, this is Sari's word, it being prophecy refers to giving spontaneous, spirit-led praise and worship and glory to God. You see, prophecy can broadly be just defined as making known the will of God. And that can happen through foretelling the future. And that can happen through just giving praises to God. Joel here is referring to this broad definition of prophecy. And how can we be sure of this? Well, Peter is using this quotation to say that what these people are seeing, namely the speaking of tongues by the 120 disciples, is the fulfillment of this verse. The fulfillment of, and they shall prophesy upon receiving the Spirit. And do you remember what Luke, we just read it, what Luke records them prophesying or saying when the Spirit falls upon them? Remember the people said they hear them speaking the mighty works of God? You see, there is a unique gift of prophecy, yes, that that refers to um, telling of the future, right? But this is not what uh, Joel is foreseeing, and this is not what Peter is using this text to say. Because think about what, in adding that, and they shall prophesy, who is the they that Peter is referring to? He's referring to all those who would believe. You see, thus all believers are empowered by the Spirit for a particular calling. That calling is proclaiming the mighty works of God. I remember where Jesus said that the scope of this work would happen in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Given the scope of this mission, all believers need need to be equipped to be a witness for Christ so that people can learn to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Also, Think about this. At the Great Commission, what does Jesus tell his disciples in Matthew 28? He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And a little bit further, he says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Note that all I have commanded you. That includes the command to make disciples. See, this means a part of the apostolic ministry was making disciples who made disciples. And in order to do that, the whole church must be empowered to be a part of this disciple-making process, to be a part of preaching the gospel. So what does this mean? What does this mean? This is the question they ask Peter. Well, Peter answers. 
He is saying that the indwelling of the Spirit signifies the inauguration of the last days. And only those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved from the wrath to come. But you may be asking, as they should be asking, who is this Lord? Peter doesn't miss a step. Look at verse 22. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. But you see, in Peter revealing that Jesus is this Lord, there is an indictment upon this crowd. And this gets us to our third point, the indictment. So look over verses 22 to 36. If you have it before you in your Bible, if you just scan over it, is there a word that sticks out to you? There should be. The word God. Listen to how often Peter in this, just these um, small amount of verses here refers to God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man is tested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Verse 24, God raised him up. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up. Verse 33, before being, being therefore um, exalted at the right hand of God. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel know uh, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus. Do you see the theme? God has fully accepted and exalted Christ. But what was the reception of the Jewish people to Jesus? How did they respond to him? Well, therein lies the indictment. Verse 36 again, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. And you see, now that he's explained what this uh, uh, coming down of tongues, uh, what this tongues means, he wants them to get to another point. The point there being that Jesus is the Messiah and you killed him. And how does he bring up these, how does he kind of prove this point? Well, he brings up three areas where God shows his approval and confirmation of God's, uh, Christ's work. First, it's through his signs and wonders. Look at verse 22 again. It says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Peter is saying that the miracles were God's confirmation of Jesus as his servant, as his Messiah. And and the Jews had to know this. They had to recognize this. There had been 400 years where there was no prophet, where there were no miracles. And then there was Jesus. Remember what Nicodemus says to Jesus? Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Remember what, uh, what the response of the people was when Jesus did miracles? Remember they would ask the question, can this be the son of David? Can this be the Messiah? You see, they knew. They knew there was something unique and special about Jesus. But did they accept his words? Did they accept his testimony that he was the Messiah? No. They rejected him and ultimately yelled out, crucify him. Notice here when Peter continues in this verse, he says, signs which God did through him in your midst. You see, right there, uh, Peter is tying the work of Jesus and God as one and the same. I have to tell these believers, listen, you've rejected 
Jesus. And by extension, you rejected God. Their work is one and the same. But that's not all. God also shows his approval of Jesus and his, his confirmation of him as his Messiah through his death and resurrection. Look at verse 23. It says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, one quick thing I want to mention here. Notice Peter does not say, Oh yeah, this is God's plan. It's cool. You off the hook. No. They are still responsible for what they did. Even though God has sovereignly um, used their evil to accomplish his purposes, they are still liable. But now saying that now that Peter is saying that this is up to this is God's plan, how does he go about proving this? Well, look at the next verse. It says, God raised him up, loosening, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And just look at the contrast real quick, right? It says, you killed, you crucified and killed him by lawless men. And then right there, the next verse says, essentially, God has raised him up. They call Jesus a blasphemer. And God, by the resurrection, proves and vindicates Jesus as his Messiah. But in order to support his argument with the resurrection, he quotes Psalm 16, 8 to 11. And Peter claims that this can only be fulfilled by Christ. Now, what is Psalm 16, 8 to 11 about? Well, David is proclaiming his trust in God, who he views as God's care as being certain, right? Thus, he's, he's saying that he has nothing to fear, not even death, because he's certain of God's provision and protection. However, Peter makes a very good point, right? He's saying that this could, these words could not have been fulfilled in David. Why? Look at verse 27. What does it say? For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Well, this couldn't refer to David, right? Because David's dead. And just as Peter says, David's body is deteriorating in a grave that they can go and see to this day. You see, death was able to keep a hold of him. But not with Jesus. Jesus was no longer in his grave. And you have to remember, guys, you must remember, this is something that would have been known by the people. The, the news of Jesus's, um, let's say, well, it's resurrection, because that's what um, obviously the disciples would say, but news of the fact that he is not in the grave has spread throughout Israel. They, the people know that he's not there. That's one of the things with the guys with the road to Emmaus. Remember, they were trying to figure out what had been going on. They were talking about all the things that had been happening those days. So they know that Jesus wasn't there. But Peter grounds this claim in the reality of the promise that God gave to David, that one of his descendants would have an eternal reign. Look at, um, if you can, uh, 2 Samuel 7, um, verses 12 and 13, right? It says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. But think about this. If there is a descendant of David that is supposed to have a throne that is forever, that kingdom that lasts forever, then he can't, be, he can't die. He can't stay dead. 
right? But think about it. David is dead. Solomon is dead. And all the kings who came after him are dead. But this Jesus, verse 32, this Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. That's what the disciples are saying. They're saying that, hey, we, we have seen him. We've touched him. We've heard his voice. He is alive. But lastly, God shows his approval, his confirmation of Jesus as his Messiah through his exaltation. Look at verse 33 here. It says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Now, one of the things to remember in the ancient world, right, um, the right hand of a monarch was seen as a position of supreme power and authority. Like in the Old Testament, the right hand of God is seen as a source from which, you know, his salvation and his power is shown. Thus, when Peter associates Jesus with this phrase, right, he's essentially calling him deity. And you see, in Joel 2, the, you know, the very Joel 2 that Peter cites, right, it states that God is the one who will pour out the Spirit on all people. However, Peter here is saying it is Jesus who is doing that outpouring. He's clearly saying that Jesus is deity. Jesus is God. And Peter quotes Psalm 110 to reinforce his point. Listen, uh, this is verses 34 to 35. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And you see, Peter wants the people here to ask themselves this question. Since they know that David did not ascend into heaven, David died and stayed dead. To whom is Yahweh speaking when he urges this person to sit at his right hand until his enemies are entirely subjugated? Who is it? Well, to figure this out, right? I mean, we have to look at and understand the two uses of Lord that David is using here in this text. Neither of which refer to David because David, we know, is the speaker. David um, is using two versions of Lord. So the first one here which says the Lord. That, can be trans- that is a translation of the divine name of God, Yahweh. The second one which says my Lord, the second person who is being referred to. Remember, the, the Lord is, is saying something to my Lord. Well, that my Lord is a translation of the, the phrase Adonai. So you could almost retranslate this as saying something to the extent of um, God says to his sovereign one or to my sovereign one, sit at my right hand. Thus it's clear, right, that this is a reference to two different people, two different well, persons. Furthermore, the Lord enthrones my Lord with all power and dominion. Peter is saying that David foresaw a day where God would exalt the risen Messiah to his right hand and give him divine rule over all creation. And don't misunderstand Peter's uh, phrase in verse 36, which says, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus. He is not saying that Jesus somehow became Lord at some point in time. It's, what he's saying is that God revealed Jesus as Lord through his resurrection and exaltation. Jesus was always Lord. 
This is now just something that has been fully revealed. And this does get us to the ultimate uh, uh, point, the ultimate indictment that Peter is we're trying to get to this whole time, right? Which is, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the divine, the divine ruler of all creation. And you rejected and killed him. Now, friends, I do not want you to misunderstand here. When Peter gives this indictment um, to these Jewish believers before, uh, Jewish people before him, sorry, this is not just an indictment for them. This is an indictment that we ourselves share in as well. Yes, we weren't literally there saying we want Barabbas, crucify him. However, we are complicit in the same crime as they, which is the rejection of God. Think about it, right? The Bible says in the Psalms, there's none who does good, not even one. All of us, all of us, from as early as we can remember, have sinned. We've lied. We've stolen. We've hurt people. And the the truth is, all of those acts of sin ultimately is in our rebellion against God. Rebellion against the rule of King Jesus. Thus, the wrath that is to come, the wrath that is going to be poured out on that great and magnificent day of the Lord is coming for you and I if we do not believe in the Lord Jesus. And that fact should concern you if you do not believe in him. That fact should concern you if you have not called upon his name. It should concern you like it concerns this crowd here. Look at verse 37. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They felt convicted. You see that phrase, cut to the heart, it refers to an emotion of being deeply distressed. But see, remember, this too is what Jesus promised that the Spirit would do. Remember in John 16, 8, when he says, and when he comes, referring to the Spirit, he will convict the world concerning of sin and righteousness and judgment. This is the Spirit's role. He convicts, he makes you know that you have actually offended and rebelled against a holy and righteous God. And the result of this work of the Spirit leads these people here to ask Peter and the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And I hope if you do not know Jesus tonight that that is the question of your heart right now. Peter does respond to the distressed crowd by giving them the invitation of Christ. And that gives us our last point, the invitation. Now, when we think of our invitations, we think of like, you know, RSVPing to parties or dinners or events, things that we can either take it or leave it, right? But when it comes to Christ's invitation, there's something very important that you have to keep in mind. Jesus is a king. You see, this is no mere invitation. This is a royal invitation. For, for example here, if, the queen, if Queen Elizabeth was to say, hey, I want to invite you to meet with me, royal um, etiquette dictates that you accept her invitation. Rejection of her invitation is only made in the most exceptional circumstances. You see, the queen's invitations are accepted on the basis of who she is. She's royalty then how much more so should Christ's invitations to us be accepted? 
Christ, who is the Lord of glory. Christ, who is before all things and in him all things hold together. What excuse would you have to reject his call? That's why he makes the example of the king in the, uh, the parable of the great banquet, right? Remember, the king invites all these people, they, um, and on the day of the feast, they don't show up. They give him excuses, and the king gets angry. Why? Because who are these people to reject his call? So what is the content of this invitation? Well, first, verse 38, Peter said to them to repent. Brothers and sisters, repentance means to turn away from your sin, to place your trust in Christ as the only acceptable sacrifice for sin. See, he is the one who took your place. He is the one that received the wrath of God for you. And his resurrection, as we've covered before, displays God's approval of his sacrifice. See, repentance also means that you must acknowledge Jesus' rule and reign through obeying him. Jesus is a divine king. That never changes. The question is, will you submit to him? But that's not all. The next thing there, Peter says, is be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, please do not misunderstand this. Peter is not saying that you need to be baptized in order to receive the forgiveness of sins. That's not what he's saying here. Essentially, right, uh, especially if you look at the verbs in the Greek, um, the, the verb like repent is in, plur- um, is in plural, right? The idea of for forgiveness of sins, which comes next, is in plural. But the be baptized is actually in singular, right? So it's almost that you can actually read this as saying, um, repent, be ba- um, repent for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone who calls, who, who, on whom the Lord God calls to himself, and be baptized. Like, in other words, baptism could come at the very end, right? Because it, it, it's kind of, if everything else is plural and this is singular, it kind of sticks out. And the point to that is to say this. Baptism is a sign of an inward change, right? It's not the idea that you get um, saved by baptism, but it's the idea that every believer is baptized. Why? Because baptism is a public declaration of an inward reality. It is um, you publicly aligning yourself not only with Christ, but with his people. And that is why we are all called to do it. But why is it that we are asked to repent? Well, he says, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Our sins can be forgiven in Christ. We can be saved from the wrath to come if we call upon him. And in calling upon him, we will receive the, the Holy Spirit. Think about this. We will receive the presence of God to dwell with us forevermore. What a gift. But look at what he says next. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And this is, this is extremely encouraging for us. If you really think about it for a second, who is he talking to? Who are these people? Look at Matthew 27, 24, and 25. This is Jesus um, before Pilate. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, he was trying to convince the people to let Jesus go. 
but rather that a riot was beginning. He took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Think about it. These are the same people who did this only seven or so weeks ago. These are the people saying that the blood of Jesus will be on them and their children. But the promise, Peter is saying, is for them, despite their rejection of Christ, despite their murder of him. And yes, the promise is for you. Because if they could be forgiven, you can too. No matter the sin, no matter how dark, no matter how bad, the blood of Christ can wash you clean. Friends, this is a great um, gift to us. This is a great picture of the mercy and grace of Christ. This is an unrivaled type of love that he has shown us. So please, if you are one who has not, who has not called upon the name of the Lord, if you are one who, does, who could say that you do not know him, and more importantly, that he does not know you, please do not leave here tonight without talking to someone about the gospel. The day of the Lord is approaching, that final day of judgment. And don't, please don't tarry. Don't tarry. Come to Jesus tonight. So what was the result of this sermon, though? Verse 41 says, And those who received his word um, and were baptized, the, the, there were those who received his word and baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Remember we talked about the idea of Pentecost being an agricultural festival. Well, the way it was celebrated was the people would bring the first fruit of their harvest for sacrifice. That's how they would express thanks to God. And here we see the first fruits of Jesus' heavenly ministry. He's added 3,000 souls to their number. Remember now, back in chapter 1, we, we went over with Max. The disciples asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Well, here we see that that restoration has begun. Because look at Luke's words in verse 5 when he says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. See, the restoration of Israel was a time when the exiles of Israel would come back to Jerusalem. Under the the, um, rule of a Davidic king, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is what we see happening now. The kingdom is being restored now. But for what purpose? See, restored Israel was to be a light to the nations. They were to take the word of God's salvation to the entire earth. And see, if you are a believer today, we have been grafted into that. We, that is our mission as well. We have been saved to go out and preach the gospel, to evangelize the lost. And God has empowered us for this purpose. And with that, that kind of leads us to two quick points of application, or maybe even better yet said, encouragement. The first one is, when it comes to evangelism, believer, you have what you need. That is the Holy Spirit. Look, I know some of you in here may say, look, I'm not eloquent enough. I don't, I don't have an MDiv. I don't know enough. I, I, you know, I guess I'm not confident enough, not bold enough, whatever it is. Here's the thing, though. You have the thing of most, of first importance. You have the thing with, if you have everything else in the world for evangelism and you do not have the Spirit, you will fail. 
We need the Spirit. It is the Spirit that empowers us to speak the truth. It is the Spirit that convicts the hearer of his sin. It is the Spirit that regenerates him and saves him. And that Spirit lives in us. God has given you the the ultimate tool that you need, which is himself. So you can actually preach the gospel. You can be a witness for Christ. You can speak of the mighty works of God. But you may still say, look, I still don't know everything. If I had to disciple somebody, I, I, I can't. I mean, I, I only know so much. I only know a little. Well, this is where the other encouragement comes in. Evangelism is a group project. Think about this for a second. While we're hearing Peter preach this sermon, remember the 11 are with him. I remember somewhere behind them is another 100 and so people. He's not alone. See, for some of us, evangelism is difficult because we try to do it solo. We try to be, uh, you know, a lone ranger. And the powerful thing that God has given us is a church. He's given us one another to support one another, to encourage one another, to, to labor together. And what can this look like practically? Well, it could be as simple as just merging the different spheres of your life together. Think about it. Not by any malicious or any type of like wicked reason do we have sometimes different spheres of our lives, but just by the, the comings and goings of life, right? You work somewhere, you, you meet people there, you, you talk to people there, and that just becomes one sphere of your life, right? And then you have your church life, where you have your friends that you are with, your brothers and sisters that you um, are with. And sometimes it's simple, the simple way that we can help evangelism happen is just merging those worlds together. You have friends that will never come to church, but if you invite them to, you know, hang out at the park, and you invite some friends of yours who are believers, here you are. You've merged these two worlds together. And I've seen it happen time and time again. People who do not know Christ that come about uh, the people of God, and they get questions answered. Because I may talk about um, uh, God and what I am learning from one perspective, right? Another person, God, may be teaching them something else. And all these people together can come and confirm one another. So the person comes in, he hears the gospel from me, he hears the gospel from that person, that person, that person. And God uses that to save that person. So look, man, we don't have to do it alone, right? Jesus said that the harvest is plentiful. There is a harvest out there. It's just the labors are a few. So together we have been empowered by the Spirit to together to be laborers in the harvest. So let's labor together, brothers and sisters. Uh, Let's pray.